on this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we talk with Dawson Westensko, a product manager and sustainability consultant. We discuss bringing product to market at companies like Thule, REI, and Oboz, and the future of sustainability. Okay, welcome back everyone. This is Chase, and today I'm joined um, by an Aggie. His name is Dawson Westensko. He's a product manager, sustainability consultant, worked for a lot of great brands in the in the outdoor industry. Um, currently doing some work with with Oboes as well as some some other brands, and we'll get into kind of what consulting is like um, in the outdoor industry. But has a, a wealth of experience, um, and awesome to have an Aggie on on the program. So yeah. thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. I'm not a true Aggie. Not a true Aggie. Just a- you know what? Neither am I. <laughs> Neither am I. My wife and I both went here, and, and we're not true Aggies we were, somehow. We were, we were in the same boat, so de- definitely an Aggie, but not quite a true Aggie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good to have you here. How, how long has it been since you've been been on campus? You know, I have family in the area, so it's been, you know, I get here every couple of years, but it's really, it's been a long time since I've walked around as much as we had the opportunity to this morning, and so it's awesome to see some of the old spots that I remember, and it's incredible how much has changed uh, you know, even just in a few years, all the new buildings and, you know, the campus looks great. It's, uh, I think it's a really exciting time for the university and, and exciting, uh, you know, to see this program evolve and, and what you guys are doing. So it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great place to be great, a great place for the outdoor industry for sure. Um, wanted to, to have you on to talk through kind of your career, you know, from coming, coming to Utah state, mm-hmm. um, kind of talk about that journey as well as, you know, what have you been doing going from, you know, Hilti kind of in the tool space to Thule to REI to Oboes mm-hmm. and now jumping into consulting and, and working um, kind of in product management mm-hmm. and sustainability? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind. I, I graduated from, from Utah State and I kind of, I was pretty typical in that I jumped around quite a bit and so started in, you know, fine arts and Tried a, tried a few different uh, majors along the way. I think when I graduated from Utah State, I, I really knew, like I wanted to get into the outdoor industry and wanted to get into product, but there really was not a clear path, honestly. Uh, and so just, you know, I worked in retail banking a bit. And the best thing about retail banking was that it taught me that I didn't want to work in retail banking. Yep, yep. <laughs> and so that made it pretty clear that, you know, if I wanted a career in product, I needed to sort of take a different path. And so uh, decided to go back to school and get an MBA at Thunderbird. And uh, and at Thunderbird, it was pretty interesting. You know, a lot of people wanted to work for Goldman Sachs. You know, I wanted to work at REI. And so there were all these projects, and every project I kind of focused on outdoor industry. Um, you know, I remember I did a project uh, about REI entering into uh, Chile, like how – like how would I recommend that they entered into the South American market? And so that was a project that I worked on. And, you know, so I think for me, I really, I left Thunderbird knowing that I wanted to get into the outdoor industry, but also kind of having this passion for product and product management. So I had the opportunity to join Hilti, which is a European power tool manufacturer, got sales and product management experience. And again, that taught me that I loved working on product, loved kind of coming up with a like sort of identifying a problem and then seeing a solution to that problem that I helped create out in the world and that I really loved that. But uh, I really, and, and it doesn't matter for everybody, but for me, I really wanted to work on product that I was passionate about. So once I got that product management experience, then I was able to kind of parlay that into, okay, 
outdoor industry categories that I'm more passionate about, brands that I'm more interested in. Uh, and then for me, I think every company that I've worked at has offered me a different learning experience. And I've really, there's been something pretty specific that I wanted to kind of pick up in my experience. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of been my, a little bit of my background in the, in the industry. That's awesome. And, and you've kind of landed in product management, whether, and that there's a lot of different names for that product line management, category management. Uh, you've been a, a director of product, you know, what does someone in that type of position do day to day? What does that position look like? What, what was your role with these different companies? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they were all a little different. And I think it's when you look at product management, it's a good observation and a very true observation that the role varies by company and the title varies by company. And, this, you know, in a lot of ways, the same work needs to be done, but it's done by different people, um, you know, or different teams. And so Hilti is, it was a really big company. And they were very engineering focused. And so when you're part of a big company, you sort of have to accept that they have a very solid process for creating product and it's efficient. What that means is, you know, you have a very defined role within that process. So at a big company, and this is the same in the outdoor industry, right? Any, the bigger the company, the more it's sort of like someone hands you their work, you have a very defined task that you do with that work, and then you pass it along to the next person. Um, and that's just sort of the way, the way it is, right? Um, so that's, that was Hilti, um, and really a great place to learn and a great place to start. Um, but as I moved into other companies, you know, my first role in the outdoor industry was at Thule, and uh, I was part of a really small team that was entering into the um, electronic device case business. And so that was a really entrepreneurial environment. Thule, as a, as a product manager, they called them category managers. You really had full ownership. And at the time, uh, entering into this new category, it was a lot about saying, okay, this is a blank slate. How do you build a multi-year plan what are the categories you should get into first? Um, how do you, you know, what's the right move for the for the brand? What are the strongest customer relationships? You know, we were getting into new accounts like Apple and Best Buy that we, you know, the company hadn't been in before. Uh, we were working in materials. You know, there was no injection molding factory at Thule when I, so it was sort of like, we'll go find one, right? Um, and so it was very entrepreneurial and really like full ownership, like very, you know, sort of business ownership. Uh, at REI, REI again was a, was a really big company. Um, so it's a little bit, it wasn't quite to the extreme of Hilti, I would say, but definitely a more sort of defined process. Um, and then Oboe's was, was really great. Um, again, going back to a smaller brand where, uh, and that was a big part of me, wanting to go back to Oboe's or go, go to Oboe's was really about getting closer to sort of the founding of a brand and more of an entrepreneurial experience. Uh, and so, you know, it's sort of building the plane as you're flying in a lot of ways. I would say fundamentally what's in common between all those experiences is that um, product management is about understanding a market or understanding a specific consumer, being able to identify a need or a problem, and then helping the organization through a draft and or through a brief and through a design and development process and sort of shepherding that project through the company so that you end up with a product at the end that speaks to that customer or solves that problem uh, in the way that you you observed at the beginning. And I think that's that's kind of at the root. Um, and again, it looks a little different everywhere, but that's kind of the core of what product management uh, is. So when you're looking at a new category or, or considering jumping in, wh what does that look like? How do you start 
what does that the beginning of that process look like when you're trying to evaluate whether it makes sense for Thule to jump into you mm-hmm. know the electronics you know case business? I mean, I think a lot of it is, and and actually, it's interesting that you asked that question. When I was at, at REI, one of the things I did uh, was help figure out if we should exit a business and evaluate new businesses. Uh, for, for like a potential, hey, should we do this as a brand, right? Mm-hmm. And so there were, you know, w- one example I'll give you um, that I looked at was headlamps. And when you start pulling data on the headlamp market, you find out really quickly that, uh, and again, I think this is generally known within the industry, but you know, there's some very large players who own the vast majority of the market. So Black Diamond's like, 60% of the market. And then you have Petzl, and, and these are not precise numbers. This is the best of my recollection over years, and I'm sure it's changed since then. But at the time, Black Diamond was like 60%. Petzl was like 30%. Um, you know, And then from there, it sort of went from 5% to 1%. So looking at that market, you just have to say to yourself, like how, how big of a business can this be? And is it worth our time and investment to go after the the market? And so I looked at that and said, the chances of knocking off the number one or the number two is pretty slim. We don't have any sort of technological advantage. Um, And so the piece of the pie, once you get beyond those top two or three is pretty small. And then you start looking at the internal um, organization of the company and you say, well, you know, you learn a little bit about the business and headlamps are all about like electronic components and lumens. And, um, you know, those are things that you sort of have to constantly monitor and update. So it's a business that's pretty high touch. And if you don't have sort of a system or a team to manage that, I I didn't see likelihood of being super successful at it. Right. Right. And so those are the types of things that you, that you look at. I think at Thule in the instance, you know, the decision had already been made to go into electronic device cases and so at that point, it was about looking at, you know, a lot of different things. I think the size of the market, like if you're just looking at smartphones, for example, what phones are we going to make cases for, mm. right? You can't make cases for everybody. You look at the expense of tooling cost. Uh, you look at the investment uh, that it takes to, you know, to chase a market. And you have to look at the overall size and say, what are, what's our likelihood of being successful here? It's really creating like that business case kind of beginning to end. What does that ROI look like? What's, you know, when are you going to break even on your investment and really how big of a prize? Because again, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of brands have sort of minimum bars for if, if this new category isn't going to be a $10 million category, then we're not going to mess around with it. Cause it's right. just not worth sort of reshaping the internal teams and processes to, to make it happen. You know? So I think those are some of the things that you, that you look at, but I think the important thing when getting into any new category or business is not looking at it as like a one-time event, but building a plan up front that shows a commitment to, you know, sort of building a business. And I, and I, think I've seen repeatedly, um, you know, just observe, observing brands is that when you don't do that, when you sort of just launch one product, it can be really challenging unless you're really innovative, you have a real clear advantage, um, really building out that plan. The plan's going to change, the plan's going to be wrong, but product management is all about sort of setting that strategy at the beginning and then sort of adapting on the fly as things, as things change, which they inevitably do. It seems like there's a lot of 
you know, looking at the, the market, um, evaluating what the current state is, um, and then a lot of internal reflection too, and, and evaluating whether that market is even like if we're even suited for that market, mm-hmm. right? It's it's not enough to say, oh, that's a that's an interesting market for us. We want to dive in. It seemed mm-hmm. like at our REI, maybe there just weren't the com- it wasn't it didn't fit kind of the mission of the company or the core right. competencies or the core you know the knowledge that that existed in the company, right? Whereas a toolie kind of already in the case business, so right. you know there's that internal knowledge already. It, it kind of makes a little more sense to transition into into something that still, you know, hard cases, something you're already doing, right? Is that is that fair to say? It it is and and I think that one of the things that's interesting about product management is you can it's been described as like you're the hub of a wheel and in a lot of ways you are the person within the organization that touches a little bit of everything, right? So when you talk about like brand and marketing, like there's a real, you have to understand uh, what that means for your brand to understand what, like like where the, the company should move in the future, right? And the, none of these decisions are made in a vacuum as a as an individual product manager, but I think you help you help sort of bridge the gaps and bring the right people together and the right teams together so you have the right conversations and can make the right decisions and that that's a lot of what product management does too is it's it's extremely cross-functional and you're working with with sales and marketing and design and development and operations and you know with retailers and 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 you're touching the customer i think more than anyone else in the company and so that is uh you know i think that's that's part of the challenge and that's also part of the fun of of the role do you feel like a fortune teller at times? Like you're you're looking into the future so often, um, you know, trying to trying to see, you know, what's coming and which direction the company should go. Do you feel that way? Is that that's that wasn't part of the job description, yeah. right? Or previous experience you you needed. But do you feel that way? How is that looking in the future um, and trying to predict what you know, where you need to go? Well, I forward. it's it's funny because I think when you work whether you're working in design or development or product management, you're always, depending on what category, right, you're typically a year or two years earlier than what's in the market. So if anything, I think you just get in a headspace where that's what you think about. And so if anything, you go out into the market and you say, man, we're still selling those shoes. <laughs> mm. Like we are, because in your mind, you've already dropped them from the line. You know, yeah. that's just where your head is. Right. And so you go to OR and it's sort of like, oh, you guys didn't know that we're doing X, Y, Z, because that's just the world that you live in, you know. Right. And so I think, um, you know, you, you just get into that headspace and into that cadence of looking into the, looking into the future and trying to kind of always see where the market's headed and make assumptions. And uh, and, you know, and again, those those things are always to some degree incorrect but it's fun to try and kind of read the tea leaves and uh, you know, and there's a lot of people in the organization that you're relying on to help you help you do that. Well, right. Right. Um, yeah. That's just still kind of blows my mind. It, it seems like there's always a little bit of guesswork still. Right. And mm-hmm. some, some error there. And how, how does that feel when, when you miss on something? Have you ever had that, op- that situation occur? Uh, no, where no, really never. Missed, of right? course not. Of course. No, I mean, I think, um, I think if you don't miss every once in a while, then you're not pushing the organization enough is kind of my my perspective on it. 
Uh, I think different organizations look at risk differently, but I think as a product manager or just as an organization, if you don't have the ability to, you know, to absorb a certain amount of, of, of missed product launches, then I think you're, you're not trying hard enough and those companies aren't going to, aren't going to last long. You know, I think, um, you know, so there's, there's nothing that jumps out in my, in my mind as being, oh man, that was a real, like I was totally off base on that one. Um, but, but yeah, you know, you have some that are more successful and some that aren't, you know, even, even within categories, you know, I think, I think part of that looking into the future is that a product manager might have more inherent patience because you sort of have this vision of the future saying, well, we're doing this product this season, but I'm not looking at it in isolation. I'm looking at it in a three-year plan to get into a new category. Mm. And so I actually don't expect that we'll maybe sell that many, but it's relevant and important for XYZ reason, right? We need to bring our customer along or we need to introduce ourselves into the market or we need to, you know, we need to become a player and then follow up and make sure that we're bringing new product to show that we're committed. Right. And so I think that's, that's easier for product management than sometimes other departments that are more focused in the here and now. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's sort of built into, I think, product teams and how they, and how they work and how they think. Did you, did you always have that level of patience? It seems like as a, as a category director, product line manager, you're always working towards the future, right. Mm-hmm. And working on products that, you know, you know, eventually you hit send, right. And, and, um, it, it gets made and then they land and, and they, you know, hopefully start selling. Right. Um, but there's, there's a two year period there, right. That you don't know if the decisions that you made mm-hmm. really were the right decisions. Right. How, how has that been? Is there a level of patience there and, and where did you develop that or, you know, a trust in yourself and your team to be able to make the right decisions? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question because it's always, uh, it's always a little bit of a waiting game, right? Seeing that product actually, actually come out into the market. And what I can say is that, you know, when you step into a new role, you're always taking over product that is sort of in process. And so it's pretty thrilling the first time that there's a product that like, okay, you briefed it and now it's actually hitting the market. Yeah. I would also say there's always earlier reads, you know, and so, you know, it's not as if, it's not as if you go in a, go into a vacuum and, and I actually, this does happen at some companies, but it doesn't work very well as if the team sort of goes into a vacuum and creates something without any feedback uh, from the rest of the organization or external folks. And I think the best product companies and the best product managers get feedback during the process. Yeah. How, how much feedback do you get from external, you know, from your partners, um, and, and when does that happen along the, along the process? It really depends on the, it really depends on the company and it depends on it's the market research part of it is really important, but it's also really different everywhere I've been. Yeah. But to give you an example, uh, one of, you know, so you always want to get some amount of input before the brief, right? And that can take a lot of forms that can be a focus group that can be, uh, just, market research as far as looking at what competitors are doing, comparing what the brand is doing. You know, a lot of times there's really, you know, there's sort of, once you have like a really high level strategic initiative, it's pretty easy to say, well, 
number one priority should be this. Two, three, and four are kind of harder to identify, but the first, uh, you know, the first priority is pretty easy. I think a lot of times, especially if it's newer and if it's clear that you need more information to make a better decision, then you start getting that information earlier. So that might be talking to reps and retailers. That might be going out and doing retail visits. That might be doing a focus group. Uh, And then the, you know, and that's the internal teams, right? That's, that's talking with reps. That's talking with, with other sales folks to kind of just make sure that, you know, I've found you're typically not that far off, but there are nuances that are important that you get from talking with those other partners. Um, I think, you know, I've had a lot of success where if you do a focus group early on, sort of including those people through the process. And that can be challenging because the world of product is fast moving and you sometimes you can't wait uh, to get feedback. But something as simple as putting together a survey with three design concepts, sending it to the original um, group and having them fill out a survey. And that gives you some initial feedback, right? Or color is another tough one where you can go back to that original group, say, hey, here's three colors of each style that we're landing on. Pick your top choice. And, you know, I think in product management and in all of this sort of strategy work and looking into the future, it's important to not rely too heavily on number one on your own thoughts, right? Because when this is done well, you're looking at so many different areas of information and data that you start to see patterns and then it becomes less of a hunch, right? Because you're saying, well, I heard this from a retail buyer who's plugged into the market. I'm seeing this from my main competitors. This is what the focus group is saying. And all these things are kind of aligning. So there's common threads. And then, like I said, you're sort of getting feedback. Uh, Some projects, you get minimal feedback from buyers because maybe it's an account where you don't have that great of a relationship as a brand, right? So it's hard for you to get in and show them a prototype. And there's also a balance between showing something, you know, we, we talk about sample goggles a lot, right? And product teams are pretty good with sample goggles. Um, people who aren't involved in product every day have a harder time sort of seeing past the roughness. So it's this balancing act. You want to show people and get feedback, but you also don't want to show it too early so that it sort of self-destructs because you didn't spend two more weeks refining the, and and that's, you know, that's different in every business and at every company. Um, But there are certain projects where you're checking in very regularly with the buyer because you've already agreed that it's going to be an exclusive product or it was an, it was an ask. And so you're really plugged into getting regular feedback. So in that sense, it's not that you're off on your own for 18 months, sort of, you know, in a laboratory. Um, If that, if that, makes sense yeah how how much do you weigh feedback from retailers and your buyers and your direct-to-consumer you know customers i i'm sure you get very different feedback from those two different groups and they're both very important and direct-to-consumer more and more so all the time i'm sure Mm -hmm. um you know what what's that split look like because you know that feedback from from rei is incredibly valuable and they're gonna you know buy a lot of product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and push that out. So how, how does that, how does that look? What is that like? Yeah, I would say it's always a tug of war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always a tug of war with, you know, because ultimately when you're talking about a wholesale model, I mean, you have to sell it in 
to the account or it doesn't see the light of day, right? And so it's it's really important to have buy-in. Uh, I have found, like color is a good example where, you know, everybody has an opinion about color, but very few people are experts about color. And that includes product managers and that includes buyers and that includes designers. Um, you work with a good colorist and they're worth their weight in gold, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's about, in a lot of instances, trusting the people that you've empowered to sort of make decisions and get feedback, but also trust their expertise. So if you have a really good color person, if you go to a buyer and say, hey, what color do you want us to make? You're going to get one answer. Mm -hmm. But if you go in and say, hey, listen, here's what we're seeing in the market. This is what our consumers say, and here's the survey research that we've done. And this is the trend analysis that our color that our colorist has done. Then they're going to say, "Wow, that looks great." Here's my here's the two that I like the best. You know, I'd prefer that one of those is in the assortment. It can and it can be a different conversation than just saying, "What type of color or what, which which okay. of these twelve would you like us to make?" Yeah. Right. And so I think building that relationship and building that rapport is really important. Uh, and I think it's again, it's always just a balancing act, and it it varies by project, it varies by category. Sometimes you have a really good group of consumers that you can go to um, to get direct feedback and other times you don't. And yeah. so I, it, it, it does, it varies uh, by company and it varies, you know, by season. You know, there, there really is a lot of, uh, you know, but I think the, in my opinion, the most important thing is like to engage outside people, but to also have a strong anchor within the brand mm-hmm. that drives how and why you're making decisions. Right. And, you know, and that can be a, that's, that's tough. I think that's tough for every company because you have to weigh the commercial opportunities with sort of your, uh, you know, with sort of what, you know, maintaining what makes the brand special and, right. you know, not sort of selling out, which, right. you know, is sort of a yeah. fun, but, but that's, you know, I think that's, that's a challenge and, and every, again, every brand sort of struggles with that. Um, but I think there's an element of like keeping to your core uh, while not being isolated and not listening to other people's thoughts or right. opinions, right? Well, that's it's an interesting point because um, do you see that brands compromise design or the product to because they want to sell? They want to sell through. They want to sell to a retailer. Um, they want to land REI. So they they are almost designing the product to sell to an account more to more than to make a, a really great innovative product. Mm-hmm. Have, have you seen that, that kind of, sure. of war happen? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And how much product goes out there that it's, it's designed less for, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to, you know, illustrate this or, mm-hmm. or get it out, but maybe, maybe it's coming across, but you know, in companies that I've been at previously, sometimes it seems like the product has been designed because that's what the retailer just wants. And mm-hmm. that's, and that's, the sole motivation mm-hmm. rather than making a great product. Right. Yeah. And I, and again, I think it's, it's always a balancing act and it's, you know, and it comes down to, because there's no one person that's sort of making that decision. It's sort of like when you think about the culture of a company, you know, there's nobody that, you know, writes on a chalkboard, this is what our culture is. And then the, mm-hmm. it's sort of, it's a collection of, it's a collection of the people at the company, right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's a collection of the individuals and personalities and experiences and whether you decide, whether you sit down and decide what you want the culture to be or not, it sort of develops, right? I think this is, is 
pretty similar in a lot of ways because it's regardless of what someone's individual convictions are, it's like that's a result of so many different people being involved in the process that it is, there's a core tenant of like, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, certain brands in the outdoor industry really like compromising something that they think is the right thing to do or say, oh, no, we're just, I don't care who's asking for it. We're just not going to do it, right? There's brands like that out there. Yeah. I think the reality is those brands are always going to be limited in size mm -hmm. and maybe that's okay. You know, but that's a decision that they make, that that's sort of what they value. And again, that goes back to, in my mind, like the core values of the company. Um, but I would say it's always a tug of war. I've certainly seen product that went out the door that I said, I wish we wouldn't have. Like, it, you know, I wish that that wouldn't have gone out the way it went out, mm -hmm. right? And whether that's because it was a commercial decision based on an account, or maybe it was a decision of, um, uh, man, we needed, like, this is in the financial plan. And so we got to launch it and maybe it's only 80% there or 90% there. And we wish it was hundred percent there, but we need, uh, it needs to launch in this season. I mean, that happens. I mean, I think that happens at every, at every company. Right. Uh, and I think the, you know, the hope is that you have more of those innovative products that drive the brand and engage end users. And, um, but the truth is, not every product that you launch is going to be that product. And I think that's okay. Right. So kind of more of a, I don't know, kind of a philosophical question, but why, like why products? Like why, what's drawn you to being, I specifically working with outdoor products. What is it about bringing a physical product to market? Yeah. I think, I think for me, I've, I learned really early on that there's just a huge thrill in seeing something that you directly impacted like there's these there's this massive machine that's rolling forward and and so many people that have to be involved in making a product and when you can say this launched in the market there is some aspect of that that i influenced and somebody actually went to the store and purchased it um it's a, it's a pretty unique experience and it never gets old honestly it's always mm -hmm. cool and I also, you know, there's this Steve Jobs quote, and it might sound corny, but he, this quote of like, once you realize that the world is made up of, um, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but once you realize that the world is made up of people like making product and that you can actually, like you can make things that people use and like in the influence the world and impact how people live, um, it's pretty empowering. And, uh, and I think just the idea of building something from scratch that didn't exist before uh, has just always really appealed to me. That's really cool. Um, along those lines, do you remember what the first product or cat or line that was released that you were a part of that you saw all the way through? Do you remember what that was? Um, or do you remember seeing that thing out in the wild? Mm -hmm. And uh, what, do you remember what that product was and what that experience was like? Yeah. I mean, I remember the first, the first outdoor product and I still get a total thrill out of it, um, which is a Thule phone case. Um, it's called the Atmos X4. And, uh, or is it the, uh, now I'm spacing on which name it was, but it's one of the phone cases I worked on. And it's one of the phone cases that they still produce for new iPhones. And I still absolutely get a thrill when I see it at OR or, uh, or anywhere else. And that was, that wasn't one of the first products, but it was, and actually now that I, now that I think about it, one of the first products that I worked on at Thule was sort of a, uh, it was a line of, of laptop bags and sleeves, uh, called Straven that we sold through 
Apple. And it was sort of like a, hey, we have this opportunity. We need this line and you got to do it in six months. And it was sort of my first project mm. and developed that and and launched it and uh, have since continued to see it in the market. And, and I do. I remember the first time I saw it in an airport, actually. And it's again, it's a pretty amazing, unique experience to that somebody actually made that decision, right? It's one thing when a buyer buys it, which is great, they decide to place it, but when you see a consumer actually go into the store, choose it from other options off the shelf and buy it, it's 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 pretty cool. And I think, you know, if you can't get passionate about about that experience, then you probably need to look for another another career <laughs> yeah. or, or another area. Cause I think, you know, that's what drives, that's what drives me. And I think that's what drives uh, a lot of other people who kind of choose this career path. How did you, it sounds like, well, you know, obviously in the work that you do, you're, you're passionate about sustainability. How did you, how did you make sure that you made product that matter matters? Like mm -hmm. we just both went to the outdoor retailer show and it seems like almost the most sustainable thing that could happen is a lot of those half those brands disappearing. Right. right? And, um, you know, in a way, and that's not a knock on, on brands at the show, but yeah, it's just um, a, right. Yep. But, you know, just having less stuff and, and more quality product um, that how did you keep yourself from making inferior product or product that really people mattered? and made a difference to people and really needed to be in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I like taking a step back and not just thinking about product, but thinking about like, not just looking at a product that matters, but looking at a company that matters, I think is, is, I think is really fundamentally where you start. Uh, I think when we talk about sustainability, especially in the product world, it's easy for people to get focused on things like recycled materials or, you know, just different sort of product specific like features or like one material. And in my mind, if you step back and look at it more holistically and say like, what is like, what, what is the reason for the company to exist? Mm -hmm. Right? Like what is the, and I think the B Corp movement is actually super interesting. And, um, I think it's, it's been really uh, compelling to kind of see that develop. Uh, Katmandu, who owns Oboe's Footwear, became the first uh, B Corp in, uh, I don't know if it's Australia and New Zealand or just New Zealand, mm. but uh, to see the B Corp movement, I think is pretty interesting and pretty compelling. And I think that when you step back and look at all the things that impact both sustainability and CSR from supply chain uh, to work, you know, workers' rights, um, all the way down through product and chemical usage and materials, all those things that encompass this term that we call sustainability, you know, the company and the values of that company have the ability to make a real positive impact in all those areas, not just in the end product. Right. Right. And so I think that's, that's really important to remember. I think one thing that you said um, I think is really critical, and that is, there's different ways to look at sustainability. And one of those is to make something that's hundred percent recycled or recyclable. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, that's a certain way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is making a product that lasts and that lasts for a long time. You know, so when, when I was at, at Obos, for example, we looked at things like PU midsoles, you know, if the EVA midsole is the thing that sort of goes out first, you know, cause part of the challenge is designing a product that, that sort of wears out at the same time mm -hmm. because, especially with shoes, there's so many components, it's hard to switch, you know, change, you know, resoling is, is an option, right? Mm -hmm. But it has to be designed into the product. 
And so making a product that lasts as long as possible and sort of making sure that the components ideally wear out in a similar time frame is a start, I think, in just reducing waste overall, you know, and, and this movement of like better, but less, I think is, is pretty critical. Uh, and again, I think at all the, all the brands that I've worked at, that's been a part of the ethos and that's been a part of, um, you know, they've, I, I've been lucky enough to work at brands that are all focused on quality, having low return rates and having product that you can use for a long time. And I think that's, that's really important in, in product design. And even as Oboe's, you know, as you, as you sort of move towards more everyday styles, you know, I think it's all relative to the category, but if you're developing a product that's in more of like everything else out there is almost throwaway and almost disposable, you don't have to work that hard to make a product that's more durable. And that, you know, it might not last for 10 years, but if it lasts for three years, it's already three times more durable than anything else in that category. Right. And that's sort of the right place to start in my, in my opinion. Yeah. I've always wondered if, because it, it, it seems like most business models and companies, they they need repeat customers, right? They need people to buy multiple products from them. And mm -hmm. I've always wondered, is there is there a viable model out there for a company that can sell, okay, we're going to sell you one pair of shoes. And that built into the model is knowing that, you know, that one customer is only going to buy one thing from us and it's going to be good enough for them for a long time. Um, and they don't have to come back to us to, to buy one more thing. But maybe that's just counterintuitive and there's no way to to make that a sustainable model. I, you know, I, I think about Patagonia as, you know, seems to be doing a great job, but even them, they had that famous don't buy this jacket ad, right? And that just drove a lot of people to buy more of those jackets, right? So it seems like, it seems like you have to rethink a whole business model, but I don't know if it's even possible for someone to just come in and buy one item from a company and, and it's good for for, I don't know, the duration. Because mm -hmm. um, so many business models are just built on, you know, you need to come back to us. Right. And is there someone that could create something that's focused on, well, just mm -hmm. come to us one time and that's that's all we need. Well, and I think, I think in a lot of instances, most brands, because you always get to a point of, and this is gets into sort of category management and like how you build a line, but ultimately, you know, at some point you you need an area of new growth and that's either go out and get a new customer or sell your existing customer another product. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a second pair of hiking boots. It doesn't have to be you bought this pair and it wore out in a year, so now you need yeah. another pair. But it might be um, you're really the fit of this last really works well for you. So you came to us for hiking boots, you stay for sandals, and you buy lifestyle shoes because, right. you know, and, and I think that is... You know, again, how many shoes does someone need? I think that's, you know, an individual decision. But I think there is value in whatever you create, making sure that it lasts a long time and that it's the highest quality possible, um, you know, within the given constraints that you have. And that's right. going to vary by category and, and by type of product. But I think it's something really critical to sort of keep in mind. And, you know, as a product team, and that's as a product manager, designer, developer, but a part of that core team, you make those tiny decisions uh, that add up to really like the whole of that product, right? And and you make what can seem like minor decisions that really impact, you know, a product that might sell 100,000 units, right? Right. And so your impact in how long a product lasts or how sustainable it is really, uh, you know, can have a 
you know, a, a greater effect than maybe what you assume it does. Um, but you're, it, it's cool being a part of that core group that, that can make those little decisions that add up. Where, where do you see sustainability right now? Um, seems like a lot of companies are, are focused on blue, blue sign certification, fair trade and, um, recycled materials. There's a lot of upcycling, a lot of repair out there. Um, kind of what is the state of sustainability right now? What, what do you think is working? What, you know, what positives things do you see and mm-hmm. where do you see us going? And, and in your work, um, you know, consulting with, with Betagraph, kind of what are you helping these companies move towards? Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's sort of a double edged sword because there is more interest and there are more tools being created to address the challenges, right? And to help guide people. Like you look at things like the Hig Index, you look at, again, Blue Sign's a great example. You look at FLA certification, you look at B Corp and any number of other um, commitments or indices or other types of uh, benchmark tools that are out there. And I think on one side, it's it shows that there's a level of interest and that's really encouraging. And there's more and more brands sort of signing on with a lot of these programs. I think the challenge for brands is to know where they should focus. Uh, I think when you sit down and really start digging into what the possibilities are, especially if you're a small brand, which again, many outdoor brands are, it can really be confusing and intimidating and a little bit disheartening. Because you see, we want to we wanna sort of make progress, but it's we just don't really know where to start. You know, And that's where I've found... Uh, you know, working with oboes and, and working with other brands is like, okay, you know, how, where are we going to focus? Because you have to focus. Um, you have to make trade-offs and you have to, you have to decide where you want to put your energies because the truth is you can't do everything. Um, and that's from a product standpoint and that's all across the board. Again, even looking at uh, supply chain and, and so you sort of, you sort of focus, you pick a lane and then you accept that it's not a checklist and you accept that it is a journey where you are chipping away month after month and year after year and you get better. And I think, you know, something that you hear a lot, but I think is totally true is don't get so fixated on being perfect that you, that you don't start. Right. And I think more and more brands are starting. And I think that is, um, that's positive. And I think, again, what I've observed is that uh, there's a lot of people who want help and that's been, um, a great opportunity for me to sort of take the experience that I've had working with small brands and helping them set up these sort of sustainability programs and helping them sort of prioritize and focus and making strategic decisions about where they should be headed. And then it becomes easier to sort of build a roadmap and a path and it becomes more clear what they should be doing first. Right. Right. Uh, if, if that makes, if that makes sense, I think there's a lot of interesting things happening on the material side. Um, you know, I think, Waste is still a massive issue that the industry doesn't want to talk about. There's so many scraps. Um, the the production process it's not the sexy part of sustainability, but reducing waste in the production process is massive. You know, you go to Asia for the first time and see a dumpster full of EVA trims from from footwear, and it's uh, you know you know that's going to the landfill or that's getting you know that's going to be incinerated. And so reducing that waste, I actually think is a critical part of sort of addressing the uh, the challenges. We couldn't have you on without 
talking a little bit about your time here um, in Logan. Um, we talked a little off air, but how did you find out about Utah State, and what was that experience like? You mentioned a little bit about your journey um, here to Cache Valley. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in, in, you know, I have family in Washington and Oregon, but I grew up most of my life in Buffalo, New York. And so, you know, at the time when I was looking at colleges, it was, there was like option one was stay back east and, you know, play sports at like a division three college. And that was, that was an option. Um, and then the other option was, you know, and I had always had this passion for the outdoors was just coming out west. And so I remember I, you know, we would come out summers and, and uh, go on trips as a family. And so part of, you know, one of those summers we were out sort of checking out colleges. And I remember pretty distinctly like rolling into Logan and, you know, seeing the Logan River like two minutes from campus and, and with the campus so close to the mountains and rock climbing and, um, you know, and everything that's available in Logan. And it just sort of blew my mind. And it was like, yeah, this, like, I want to go here. This is where I want to, where I want to spend my, my years at, at college. And, you know, and Logan's a great, um, it's a great size city. It's really supportive of the, of the university. It's got a very like university town feel, which I really wanted. Um, and again, just like the access to the outdoors was really impactful for me. Uh, and, and has definitely driven, you know, choices that I've made in my life from, from career path to where I've lived, uh, and kind of what I'm passionate about. So, so yeah, from that standpoint, uh, you know, Logan was, was really a great, a great place. We talked a little bit about this off air as well. Um, but you know, how did your time here in Cache Valley going to Utah state, how did that influence your career moving forward? Yeah. Again, I think just looking back at, really having, you know, there's a difference. If you, most places that you live, you have to go on a vacation, right? Or like take a trip to do some sort of activity. I think having the outdoors so embedded um, in my day-to-day life was really sort of impacted, you know, again, the industry I wanted to work in and and where I wanted to live and, and sort of those lifestyle choices that you make. And you know, and once you've experienced that, and, you know, I think there are more and more people who are sort of waking up to that. And as you see the growth of, of Utah in general, uh, and, and of other sort of, you know, mountain town or, um, you know, smaller communities that offer a really good quality of life, uh, and, and access to the outdoors, it's, it's really compelling. And, uh, you know, I think it's drawing more and more people as, as work turns remote and as, you know, you can sort of do your job from anywhere that, you know, you see the same, you see a similar trend in Bozeman, uh, Missoula and other places uh, in, you know, out West. And, and I think Logan in my mind has a real opportunity to continue to grow in that space and continue to attract talent and, you know, both through the university and, and through startups. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, with this program, we'll see more and more of like an outdoor company ecosystem develop, which I think is is really great. And I thought for a long time that that was, um, it was like, of course, there you know there should be a stronger community, and there will be a stronger community as uh, these types of programs develop. So I'm I'm psyched to see that. And and again, Logan has been a great a great place. And uh, you know I love trout fishing when I get back, and 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 doing whatever I I can to get in the canyon and. And, uh, and it, it's a great spot. Yeah. What What were some of your favorite activities while you were were here? Uh, what What would you like to do up the canyon? Or yeah, I mean, I uh, 
before I moved here, I definitely, I skied, uh, I, I did, you know, I fly fished. Uh, so fly fishing was definitely really big for me and I did a lot of it. I had a couple of roommates that were, that were really into it. And so we got up fly fishing as much as possible. Uh, I got my first season pass when I was, uh, in Logan. And so, you know, skiing instead of skiing, you know, a handful of times a year, but skiing like weekly, that was the first time that I had had that experience. And so that was, that was something that I picked up. I also bought my first road bike and my first mountain bike in, in Logan. Um, and then I picked up rock climbing and rock climbing is something that I do a lot less of now than I used to, but especially when I was at, at college here, I did, I did quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of climbing and, and that's been something that I've, you know, loved to sort of have as a, as an option and, 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 you know, led me into doing some mountaineering later on. That was a lot of fun. And, and, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of good, good opportunities to learn. And, and I'm, and I'm trying to remember the name of the on-campus group, um, but took a rock climbing class, you know, did some of those things that are available at the school that are really fun. Uh, and again, just sort of help broaden your horizons and give you the expertise. You know, I saw a poster for a backcountry uh, ski course, you know, which is awesome. And, and having the ability to access that type of stuff is, is really cool. That's great. Um, you know, and I share a lot of the same thoughts and hopes for, for this community to really embrace the outdoor industry. And that's part of what we're trying to do with, with this podcast is, share stories about people in the industry and, and, uh, you know, bring like-minded people together and, and see the outdoor industry grow here locally. Um, if people want to get in touch with you and, and learn more about what you're doing and, uh, beta graph, uh, kind of your consulting work, how do people stay in touch with you? I think the easiest place is, is honestly through LinkedIn, um, fairly active and, and always looking to connect with more people in the industry. Uh, so definitely check me out on on LinkedIn. Uh, the consulting website is betagraph.co. For any local uh, Logan folks who are wondering where the name Betagraph comes from, it's uh, it's a climb up Logan Canyon, uh, which is which is a great uh, a great climb. It's I think it's a 10D, um, but that's been for whatever reason that's been a the, a the name of a climb that has stuck in my mind since going to school here, uh, and that's betagraph.co is the website. Uh, and then I've also been working on another project that is called OutdoorPMSchool.com. And uh, and that's something else that I have been uh, kicking around as well. So, again, all kind of the central location, if you check me out on LinkedIn, that's probably the easiest spot to, to keep up with what I'm working on. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, it's always great to have an Aggie back and, and especially an Aggie who's done so much in the outdoor industry. So thanks again for yep. taking time and coming to campus. Thank you. It's been great. Appreciate thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found. On HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.